this is Alice. We were so moved last week by the courage and the moxie that defined Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life that we felt inspired to listen to recordings of other women in the Academy of Achievement's audio archives, women who were also born into humble circumstances but grew up to break ground for the rest of us. I chose the word moxie, by the way, because it came into use right around the time Justice Ginsburg was born, as if anticipating the force of her character. And moxie is what the three women we'll hear from today have in spades. Three very different women. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman on the Supreme Court. Irma Bombeck, the hilarious and massively popular syndicated columnist. And Hilary Swank, the actor who delivered devastating performances in Boys Don't Cry and Million Dollar Baby. It may seem like an unusual combination of women, granted, but I think you'll hear the thread that runs through what they had to say. No interviews this episode, just straight, inspirational talk. This is What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. (laughs) And then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. We start with Sandra Day O'Connor, former Supreme Court Justice of the United States. She grew up in Arizona in the 1930s a cowgirl on a ranch. There was no running water and no electricity in her house, but there were plenty of cattle and plenty of horses. Before I rode occasionally on the Roundup, it had been an all-male domain. Changing it to accommodate a female was probably my first initiation into joining an all-men's club, something I did more than once in my life. After the cowboys understood that a girl could hold up her end, It was much easier for my sister, my niece, and the other girls and young women who followed to be accepted in that rough-and-tumble world. That's Justice O'Connor reading from her memoir, Lazy Bee. And here she is, speaking at the Academy of Achievement Summit in 1987 in Scottsdale, Arizona, to young scholars. About half of you students here today are young women, and I hope you don't mind if I address some preliminary remarks primarily to those young women, because in less than one generation, conditions for women in the United States have changed dramatically. And as I reflect on how rapidly things have changed for women in this country, I can cite my own experiences, which you heard in my introduction. And If we look back uh, just to the last century, there weren't many opportunities open to women seeking careers in any field. Married women had no legal control over their property, their wages, or their children. 
Uh, women didn't have the right to vote or to practice medicine or law. And these laws weren't aberrations. They reflected widely held perceptions in those days that women lacked the capacity for leadership, whether within the community or her family. Now today, uh, you young women students will have not one but countless opportunities and different roads open to follow on your journey through life. And your challenges are not going to come so much in breaking new paths, as your mothers may have had to do, and as perhaps I have done, but in deciding which of the many paths now open to you, you should choose, and in knowing how you should travel along those paths. But all you students here today, male and female, will go on to obtain one or more university degrees, and you'll be able to pursue careers, to marry, to have families, or um, all of those. As a woman, combining a career and a family is not easy, but it certainly is possible. Now, how are you going to deal with these opportunities in your lives? Education is an important part of the answer, but don't think that your education takes place only during your time in high school or in college or in graduate school. As Peter Ustinov said, education is a process by which a person begins to learn how to learn, and you will be learning all your lives. You should take some comfort in that, because even though your problems may sometimes seem immense, you have time to learn to deal with them. But education is only part of the answer. Your values are another critical part. John Gardner expressed one of the points I want to make when he said, you have to build meaning into your life, and you build it through your commitments, whether through your religion, to an ethical order as you conceive it, to your life's work, to loved ones, or to your fellow humans. Each of us should become involved in the community in which we find ourselves. We can participate directly and fully as volunteer workers, as elected or appointed representatives in some community agency or institution, or simply as citizens working to persuade others to take needed action. And it is the individual who can and does make a difference, even in this increasingly populous, complex world of ours. If you take nothing else away from your experience this weekend, it ought to be that, because you are seeing a parade of individuals from all fields who have done absolutely remarkable things and who, in their way, have helped change society. Now, secondly, each of us must make it a habit to do our best. Whatever the task you're assigned, do it to the best of your ability, and God will take care of tomorrow. Presumably, many of you plan and hope to reach the point where you have interesting and important work to do, and you're paid as much, or better yet, more than you're worth for doing it. But if your career path is at all like mine, and who knows, uh, for one or more of you it may well be, right down to the last detail, you won't be starting at the top of the ladder. After I graduated from law school, I started my own private practice, sharing a small office with another lawyer in a shopping center in Maryville, Arizona. Other people who had offices in the same shopping mall repaired televisions, cleaned clothes, or loaned money. It was not a high-rent district. I got walk-in business. People came to see me about grocery bills they couldn't collect, 
landlord-tenant problems, and other everyday matters not usually considered by the United States Supreme Court. But I always did the best with what I had. And when I applied to the Arizona Attorney General's office for work, they didn't have a place for me. I persisted, however, got a temporary job, and then quickly rose all the way to the bottom of the totem pole at the Attorney General's office. As was normal for a beginner, I got the least desirable assignments. But that was all right, because I managed to take away from these rather humble professional beginnings some valuable lessons. I learned, for example, that the habit of always doing the best I could with every task, no matter how unimportant it might seem at the time, uh, was what bred future success. As Abraham Lincoln once observed, I always prepared myself for the opportunity that I knew would come my way. Finally, it seems important to remember that we live in a free society and under a rule of law. Freedom means different things to different people. But most importantly, it means we have the right and the responsibility to discipline ourselves. Part of that inner discipline should be a lifelong effort to leave this world a little better than you found it on your arrival. It is really, really wonderful to be here. This is actress Hilary Swank. She spoke at the Academy of Achievement's 2007 summit held in Washington, D.C. You know, every time I get an opportunity to do something like this, it's a reminder that I'm living my dream, that people want to hear my story. It's amazing to me. It's just amazing. And it's also a reminder that you can come from anywhere and have your dream realized. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, you can, can achieve your dream. Hillary Swank was born in Nebraska in 1974. She had some early success getting roles on TV and in film, but the movie that earned her her first Oscar and set her apart as one of the greatest actors of her generation was Boys Don't Cry. It was a true story set in Nebraska about a young transgender man named Brandon Tina who was raped and murdered when his birth identity was revealed. It it sounds a lot more complicated than it is. Um, Do you have any water? Because my mom, really, my voice is dry. Um, Brandon's real name's Tina Brandon. Well, see, Brandon's not quite a he. Boys Don't Cry came out in 1999 and was one of the first movies to give voice to a transgender person. The role changed Hilary Swank's life. You know, a lot of people ask, how did I start in the business? What's, what's my story? Why did I want to become an actor? And I, I grew up in a lower-income family. I, I grew up in a trailer park, and a lot of people hear that and they think, oh, a trailer park, it comes with a, a lot of baggage. Um, but for me, as a kid, I didn't know any different. And it, I had a roof over my head, and I had food, and it was no big deal. But... Um, and it also didn't mean anything to my friends, but to their parents, it meant a lot. And that's where I learned classism. That's where I learned that it was maybe not okay to be poor. Um, That's where I learned that I was um, maybe different somehow. Um, 
And in that moment, um, I felt like an outsider. Now, that's not unique to me. I think everybody has felt like an outsider in their life at one point or another. Um, I'm sure everyone here has, and everyone knows what that, what that moment was. Um, but in that moment, for me, I felt just lonely, and um, I turned to books and movies. And I remember the bookmobile would come to our, um, my trailer park, and I remember getting lost in books. And I remember loving these books, and I remember feeling like I belonged. I remember reading about characters who were going through something that I was going through, um, and I just, I felt like I had a connection, like they were my friends. And the same thing with movies. Some of the first movies I remember watching were The Wizard of Oz, The Elephant Man, and The Miracle Worker, all stories about people who were going through, through things that I felt like... Um, I, I, I understood or I learned from. Um, you know, The Wizard of Oz still touches me to this day because it was people who wanted a brain and a heart and they went looking for the man behind the curtain to give them those things, only to realize that there was no man behind the curtain and that they had to look within. I was seven, year, seven years old when I saw that movie. And a couple years later, I had a teacher, a wonderful teacher, um, when I was in fifth grade, who had us write a skit and then perform it in front of the class. And I remember in that moment, something happening. I didn't know it at the time, now I can define it as when I realized my calling. It was something that I knew made me feel the most alive that I'd ever felt. So I started auditioning for school plays, and I had a mother who to this day gave me the most important gift you can ever give anyone, which was the gift of believing in me. My mom told me from a very young age that I could do anything in my life as long as I worked hard enough and I had perseverance and I never gave up. So my mom gave me the, the, um, the understanding of how to deal with obstacles when they arose. Um, and to this day, my mom is still that advocate in my life. Um, I started auditioning for these school plays, and then I started doing um, repertory theater in my local hometown. My mom came to a crossroads in her life when I was a about halfway through my 15th year. And she said, um, you know, your father and I are separated, and if you really want to pursue this, we need to go to Hollywood. So this was a wonderful thing for me to hear, and I said, let's go, Mom. So with $75 to our name and a gas credit card, my mom and I drove down to Los Angeles. We didn't have anywhere to go. That is one of the wonderful things about my mom. She taught me a sense of adventure as well. Um, my mom did all the worrying for, for us. Um, a lot of people say, wow, you know, you lived out of your car, and wasn't that hard? No. To me, it wasn't. To me, I was living this adventure. I was living my dream. I was going to pursue my dream. It was nothing but a wonderful, wonderful um, moment in, in, in my life. Um, my mom, I remember, would stand with a roll of quarters and she would cold call agents and say, my daughter's really pretty and really talented. I think you should meet her. And they would say, okay, we'll send a resume and a picture and we'll think about that. Well, I didn't have a resume, and I certainly didn't have a picture. So that was a little bit uh, difficult. And one day, my mom just got a, um, a, an agent who was, happened to have cold, cold calls and said, yes, we're looking for talent, and why don't you come in Wednesday at 2? 
I remember it was like it was yesterday. I went in and I remember reading this McDonald's commercial and the, the woman, um, Bonnie Leakey, saying, that was great, I'd like to be your agent. And I went out and my mom was sitting there nervous and like, oh. and I said, mom, I have an agent. That woman was my agent for five years and until I became an adult and she worked with only children and I got my, my um, adult agent. Um, you know, I've had a handful, a couple handfuls now of wonderful people who have believed in me. And without them, I would not be where I am today. Um, I don't know if many of you know this saying, um, the definition of luck is when preparation meets with opportunity. And my mom also instilled in me a wonderful work ethic so that when I would go and I would audition, I would be prepared. I wanted to be prepared whenever my opportunity um, arose. Now, I also didn't knock any opportunities. I didn't think, I just want to be in big movies and you know, I don't want to do television or I don't want to do this little TV show or this little play. I always looked at every opportunity as an opportunity to grow and learn my craft. Um, and I started out um, auditioning and doing a lot of television. Now, I did a lot of comedy, believe it or not, in the beginning of my career. Every single year I would do, um, I was doing all these half hour shows and um, I wanted to start doing um, drama. I auditioned and got a, a role on Beverly Hills 90210 when it was in its eighth season and no one watched it anymore, but still it was a big deal for me. And um, I started auditioning for other dramas and I had a lot of people say to me, um, you know, you're, you're just too half hour, you're just too comedic, you're not, you're not dramatic and, and you know, this isn't gonna work for you. So my point of saying that is that I've had a lot of obstacles in my career and I, I, I choose to um, take in the constructive criticism, even though sometimes it hurts and I don't really wanna hear it, and other things that people will say, your lips are too big, your forehead is too big, what kind of name is swank? You know, all these things and say, okay, well, okay, that's your opinion. Of course it stings. No one wants to hear your forehead's too big and your lips are too big or whatever other things I don't want to share with you all right now. <laughs> um, so I chose to put those things on the side. But the point is I always look at every, every opportunity that I have in which to grow from it and learn from it and take something from it because I know that every single day that I wake up and get to do what I love, that I'm grateful and I want to continue doing what I love, which means I have to continue learning about my business in whatever way, shape, or form that is. And, um, you know, when I was told I was too half hour and wasn't going to be able to do drama, four months later I got Boys Don't Cry. And in that moment, I was given the opportunity to do drama. And I won the best uh, dramatic uh, award for best actress that year. It just happened like that and all of a sudden I was doing drama. Then when I wanted to start doing comedy again, everyone was like, but you're a dramatic actress. So again, I just, you know, I stand here just to let you know that with all the success that I've had in my life, I continue today to fight for the things that I want and to fight for the things that I believe in. Nothing is handed to me. I thought after my first Academy Award, everything was gonna change. I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I'm gonna get all these opportunities to do all these other things and I'm gonna have so many scripts coming in and so many offers to work with the people that I love. This is just great. Well, I, what hit me was that my first role that people saw me in and my first impression was that of a boy. And I had to deal with that. And I had to realize this is a business too. And that for all these people who were supposed to be the most creative people in the world, they weren't so creative. They were mostly business-minded. 
But I could choose to be bitter about that and be angry and go, how can they not see me as a girl? I'm a girl. Instead, I took my meetings, I went out, and I did my work because I have a choice every single day to grow or not grow. I have a choice to rest on my laurels or a choice to continue to find roles that challenge me and, and help me um, learn more about myself and, 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 and the human condition. Hillary Swank took questions at the end of her talk. The first was from a graduate student in the audience named Michael Motto. I first saw Boys Don't Cry when I was in college at Yale, and um, we, we didn't speak for about 10 minutes after seeing the film, and people caught that issue, like seeing, seeing the world in, in color versus black and white. My question is about the relationship between art and politics, mm-hmm. um, and how what you do and what art does can humanize stories in ways that can really uh, affect social change? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great, great question. And, um, you know, I have to tell you that when I'm asked to speak at things like this, where there's these people who, you know, changed the world and health and, 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 you know, President Clinton last night, and I'm like, I'm an actor. <laughs> How do I belong here? You know that Sesame Street thing, one thing is not like the other? Um, <laughs> I just keep thinking that they're going to see me and like go, you don't belong here. Uh, but, and, and what I do realize, um, because I experience it, the one wonderful thing about my job is that I get to see life on a very deep and profound level from a lot of different ways. I would have never known what it felt like to be a person with a sexual identity crisis had I not cut my hair off and passed as a boy for four weeks to feel the injustice of what these people feel when they're not... Um, able to be defined by people. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, I work with these kids now, too, who are lesbian, transgendered, and questioning youth um, and gay. And every day of their life, every day, they are um, abused either physically or mentally. It's a part of their life just because they can't be defined. Um, and it's just interesting, the whole psychological aspect of someone not being able to figure out who someone is and how that challenges them as, as a person. Um, I get to learn about these things on a very deep and profound level. And because of that, I get to go around and talk about it and just raise awareness um, in, 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 in different aspects, in different areas. I just you know, um, had a movie call, come out called Freedom Riders. And um, it was a wonderful, wonderful reminder that even in this day and age when we're so advanced, how people are still so prejudiced um, and judge people by how they look or how they act. Um, and these kids that this story was about, it's a true story. They were thrown out. They were thrown in the trash, told that they were never going to amount to anything, that, that they were going to be nothing. Well, if you're told that your whole life, where's your, you, you, you don't have anything to pull from. And of course you're going to join gangs. And, and most of these kids were in, 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 in gangs. And it took that one person to believe in them and say, you have just as much of a place in the world as anybody else, and you need to look within and find what it is you want and go after it. So yes, it's a wonderful, wonderful part of my job that I get to go around and talk about and make movies that have such an impact. Hilary Swank's latest project is a new Netflix series called Away. In it, she plays an astronaut, a commander, who leaves behind her husband and daughter for a three-year mission to Mars. It's very emotional and serious and stirring. 
but you know who would have made a joke if she were alive today out of taking a long break from her husband and children? Irma Bombeck, that's who. Irma Bombeck is our last speaker this episode. We turn to her for some comic relief, of course, but also for more evidence of how truly extraordinary ordinary can be. Well, you're sitting out there this morning listening to a speaker who not only looks like your mother, but for the first 11 years of her married life had the distinction of being the only one in the house who could change the toilet tissue spindle. Irma Bombeck was born in 1927 and raised in a working-class family in Dayton, Ohio. Just days before she died in 1996, she was working on one of her newspaper columns. It was a column she'd written for over 30 years that was printed in 900 papers and was read by 30 million people. Her column chronicled the life of a suburban Midwestern housewife with pathos and honesty and most of all, humor. In many funny ways, Irma Bombeck ended the myth of the happy homemaker. She also wrote 15 books, just as witty, most of them bestsellers. She gave this talk to students at the Academy of Achievement Summit in San Diego in 1983. You're looking at a woman who married right out of college because her mother panicked. Despite the fact that she was too short for pregnancy, she gave birth to three children, and at the age of 37 years of age, finally realized that visiting her meat in the food locker was a little less than a religious experience. So at that stage, I turned to writing a newspaper column. Your speaker at this moment subsequently produced uh, six books, and one of them, The Grass is Always Greener Over the Septic Tank, was made into a movie starring Carol Burnett. Yes, I know your grandmother died yesterday. She also died last Tuesday and a week ago Saturday. I'm not buying it, Debbie. I am up to my fireside girl's motto and cookies. The critic for Time magazine said the only thing good about it was that Irma Bombeck did not star in it. (laughs) In 1974, she produced a comedy album for Warner Brothers called The Family That Plays Together Gets on Each Other's Nerves. You know, looking back on marriage, um, I realize now that I married too young. But when you're 34 and in love, who can tell you? That album sold two copies at a J.C. Penney store in Beirut. <laughs> two years ago, uh, she produced a, a situation comedy for ABC called Maggie. You know that I am really trimming down. I can even get into some of the things I wore in high school. <laughs> really? Like what? My graduation gown. <laughs> and in the ratings, it was listed. Just below, Marlon Perkins viewing the dental records of a white rhino. (laughs) That's it, folks. Um, I I just, I feel like Bob Massey. I didn't want all of you to go home thinking that none of us had ever failed. 
because that's probably the one thing that this big long procession here has in common going for us today, whether it be physicists or, or sports figures or whatever. We've all failed and we've failed real big. <laughs> I think it was the Pope who once said, or maybe it was Woody Allen. <laughs> probably Woody. Anyway, he said, if, if, if you're not failing, then you're not trying anything new. And I think the important thing is that we may have failed at something, but I don't think that any of us considered ourselves failure. We just picked it up and did it all over again. There's, um, there isn't a lot that's really very unique about me. I pad my bio all the time because it is miserable. Uh, my dad had a fourth grade education. And he married my mother when she was 14 years old. I came along when she was 16. I was the first one in my entire total family. And there were about 26 grandchildren. The first one in the family to ever finish high school, let alone go to college. And I took that as a sign from God. I remember my, my counselor in college said, uh, Irma, what do you want to do with your life? I mean, what is it? You want to, you want to, you want to get married? Uh, you want to have children? You want to be a writer? You want to write a syndicated column? Maybe you want to be a best-selling author? Maybe you want to appear on television shows? And I said, yes, that's what I want to do. And he said, which one? I said, all of them. <laughs> well, after 11 years of putting a pair of socks in the washing machine and only getting one back... I looked in the mirror um, one morning and I realized something about myself, something really pretty important. I was ordinary. Just think about it. What a shock that was to me. I mean, I was an Ohio, Midwest, beige, Barry Manilow in pantyhose, ordinary. <laughs> and that was not what I had in mind for me. I wanted success. I, 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 wanted, I wanted to be one of those people who appeared on the Carson show in blue jeans and left early. <laughs> I, I wanted to be able to, um, to leave home without my American Express card. <laughs> I wanted an alligator to wear a shirt with my face on his pocket. That's what I wanted. And then I, I began to think about something. I thought, you know, um, maybe, maybe being ordinary was an asset. Was it possible? If I could translate my imperfect kids and my predictable husband and my run-of-the-mill life onto paper, would there be anyone else out there who could possibly identify with it? And I probably stumbled into my little part-time job as I know it today. It's something called honesty. Because with, with, with no, I don't think there's any other profession that you are asked to give so much of yourself. Every writer gives away a part of their very personal life. I don't care if it's a straight news story. You give away something, some clue to what you're all about. I think with every sentence that you write, um, you probably think that there's a great trick to... Um, 
to, to writing. There, there really aren't, aren't, aren't too many tricks. You probably think there's a lot of things that, that you went to school for that, that you will have absolutely no use whatsoever for. I mean, why am I wasting my time doing this? A lot of dumb things, things like uh, diagramming a sentence. And when you think about it, you know, I mean, I thought the same thing. How, how many times am I going to walk down the street and someone will say, you know, you suppose we could go diagram a sentence somewhere? <laughs> It never happened. I remember taking four years of Spanish. I have never used the term yet, what time is the bullfight? Never in my life. And you get to thinking about that. You think, who cares? When am I going to use all this stuff? Well, I'll tell you where you're going to use it. I write for 900 newspapers. I write for books. And I write for television. And I have used every single scrap of every experience I've ever had in my entire life, and I have drawn from every individual I have ever met in my lifetime. At, at, at some time, I've drawn from a character I have known. Only two pieces of advice on, on writing, and this is lethal, you should never do this. Um, first, I want to tell you there's no such thing as writer's block. Really. It's like North Dakota. It doesn't exist. Somebody out here is probably saying, I'm from North Dakota. You're lying. You're not. <laughs> and I never saw anything that got into the line of print without first putting it down on paper. And what I'm trying to say in a very nice way is that stop talking about it and sit down and do it. Or it's never going to happen. I love these people who come to your parties and I said, oh, I have this... This book in my head, it's been rattling around here for 10 years. It is just wonderful. You're never going to read it. My remarks are very brief. You have to know that I do love what I do. At the age of 56, I've done things I never thought were possible, from singing two weeks ago on the stage of the Grand Old Opry with Minnie Pearl <laughs> to um, speaking at the White House. And for six years, I've worked for the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, and I'm not finished yet. I have just uh, finished a new book that's coming out this fall. It's called Motherhood, the Second Oldest Profession. <laughs> I was going to do one on the first oldest profession, but who wants to sit around reading a book on agriculture? Uh, my definition of success is probably a, a little different than most people. T to me, it's, it's knowing, just knowing when you're thin enough, knowing when you're rich enough, knowing when you're happy enough, and knowing when you're fulfilled enough, and just to sit back and enjoy it. And I see an awful lot of people who get there to success, and you know what the sad part is? The sad part is they don't, they don't know they're there. And that's what I find is, is so sad. Um, I hope all of you find your dreams, but I, I don't want you to be surprised if success takes another form. I, th I think what you're seeing with this parade of, of people here are people who, uh, who are on some kind of level that, that you aspire to. 
And that's not necessarily success either. I'm not talking about United States senators. I'm not talking about Olympic runners or Nobel Prize winners. I'm talking about the humanity that is here in this room. And don't you ever underrate it. Just think about this. Some of you out there are going to be heroes or heroines to somebody. Many of you, let's scratch the, the men on this, but many of you will give birth to something, and that's pretty terrific. Some of you will conquer an illness or a handicap in your lifetime, and that's no small thing. And some of you, if you're not already, are going to be the best friend that another person ever had. And that's pretty special. And I think most of you, by just your being here, are going to affect changes in the world just by your being. And take it. That's good enough. Um, I also wanted to tell you one last thing. Please don't be afraid of ordinary because it's never lonely there. Thank you. I can't think of a better line to go out on. Irma Bombeck speaking to the Academy of Achievement, and before her, Hillary Swank and retired Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. As far as I know, the three women never met one another, but I have a feeling if they had, they would have had a lot to talk about and would have enjoyed each other's company. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I'm Alice Winkler. And this is what it takes from the Academy of Achievement. What it takes is made possible with funding from the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation. See you next episode.